Welcome to episode 93 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Tony. How are you? We went first name today. We did. We're, we're extra casual today. Oh, I thought this was, that was like extra intimate. Well, that too. <laughs> it's a little of both. <laughs> this has already turned out to be a great conversation. It is. I feel like this is how the rest of it's going to go. So We're on the same page. Yeah, you just hit skip now. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> we'll put out the episode a second time so you don't miss it. But speaking of the brotherhood, which we still are, even though we didn't refer to each other in that specific sense. Right. You have some kind of semi-exciting news to share, right? I do. It's not just semi-exciting. It's extra exciting. Yeah, I, t- I tried to underplay that so you could over-deliver It could even it. be like 4XL exciting if you really want it to be. Oh, the puns abound. So we are super excited because we have joined the ranks of Reform Podcasts that now have t-shirts available. So we uh, were contacted by a listener of the show, which is the thing I'm most excited about, who runs a uh, an up-and-coming Reformed uh, t-shirt company. They have other stuff, too. It's rootedapparels.com. And if you go to the website, you can find your very own Reform Brotherhood t-shirt. You can get it in black uh, if you feel like baking under the hot, hot June and July sun. Otherwise, we also asked him to provide a uh, like a light gray kind of option so people don't sweat to death with our logo emblazoned on their chest so we're pretty excited it's it's a it's a great option uh the shirts look great and if you wanted to support the show and also get a cool t-shirt um we do get a little bit of funding uh, for every t-shirt that's purchased so head on over to rootedapparels.com check out our shirt but also check out the rest of their other stuff they've got some cool john owen uh quotes and some other stuff if you're vegan there's lots of shirts about veganism on the the site um it's a little bit of a mishmash of everything but uh he does great work uh the t-shirts look great they feel great it's great material um and if you use the coupon code reformed brotherhood with a space in between those words uh you can get free shipping on your entire order free shipping Yes. So, so check it out. Reform, uh, rootedapparels.com. Uh, you should be able to find our shirt right on the front page uh, if you want. And there are rumors, Jesse, that he may be adding things like coffee mugs and other, other accessories Ooh. soon. Who wouldn't want a Reform Brotherhood coffee I mug? I know. I'm pretty stoked. It's going to be excellent. <laughs> It'll just be you and I. Yeah. So, um, and the coolest part, this is like super nerdy, the tags on these... They just rip right out. So they're not yeah, tagless. You're very excited about this. I know. It's awesome. It's like, why didn't we invent this technology like 100 years ago? The tags just rip right out. And so it, it's not a tagless shirt. But if you want it to be a tagless shirt, you just pull the tag right off. There's no like messing around with scissors and accidentally cutting your sleeve or anything like that. It's the Arminian tag. It is. You get to choose whether it's there or not. I have to say, I've seen a sample of these shirts and they are killer. Like they're not just, it's not just great design, but. The shirt fabric themselves are really comfortable, right? Yeah, I'm wearing, I, he sent me a bunch of samples. I'm wearing the same style shirt, but it's not my Reform Brotherhood shirt because we were just outside and it's black and I didn't want to die. It's soft. It's so very you, soft. Yeah, it's like yeah, pre-washed. Yeah, if you're trying to snuggle up with somebody in an appropriate way, you should definitely check out these shirts. Especially if you want to snuggle up with someone <laughs> with our faces on your chest, which is bizarre. <laughs> Nothing sets the mood right like a little Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood. <laughs> All right, Jesse, let's let's pull up here before we hit the mountain. Well, listen, that was my way into segue and setting the mood right, because we got kind of a 
big topic ahead of us tonight. Yeah, I approach this one with a little bit of trepidation, to be honest. So do I. So we are talking about we got a great um, we got a great phone call, um, and and this was too big of a question for us to do on a question cast. So this is a reminder that if you think you've got a big question that you don't think is going to work on question cast, please still call and leave it because we may devote an entire episode to um, to your question. So we'll play the uh, question here and then we will go ahead and uh, jump right in. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Tony. My name is Scott Martin and I'm calling from Fort Huachuca. I've been listening to the Glory Cap Cloud podcast lately. If you're not familiar with it, the podcast is a couple of Westminster Seminary grads who are covering Meredith Klein's work. And their presentation of Klein's theory of republication of the Covenant of Works at Sinai gave me a lot to consider. I was hoping you guys could cover it, what you think about it, to what degree you agree with Klein and the others in the republication camp. Thanks for your hard work on the podcast, gents. Cheers. So this is a great question from Scott. And Scott, I appreciate you calling and bringing this up because republication has kind of been a bit in vogue recently. There's been a little bit more debate about this particular doctrine. And I think the best thing we can do is probably start by just explaining maybe what it is kind of writ large and really distill it down, maybe oversimplify it for those who are not familiar with it at all. Yeah. Is that a fair starting point? It is. And I do want to just say um, republication, in my experience, has been one of those topics that no matter how you explain the various views, someone in one of those views is going to say that you explained it wrong. Um, whether right. that's the classic reformed, you know, we're going to talk about it, the the works in essence, uh, no works in essence, only grace kind of administrative view, or one of these other views we're going to talk about, they're complicated, they involve technical categories. Um, so it's very easy to sort of slip up. So please uh, be gracious with us and uh, let us do our best and recognize that this is not something that either of us are experts in, um, but we are going to give it our, our best shot here. And it's worth wrestling through. So here we go. So here's how I would start by o- totally oversimplifying that the question of what is republication. And I'm going to do so by throwing out questions and you let me know if you think this is fair. So I think the essence of this debate is by answering the question, what type of covenant did God make with our fathers at Mount Sinai? Was it a covenant of grace, a covenant of works? or some combination of the two. And maybe like another way to phrase that would be, how does the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its prominence of God's law, which is obvious in there, how does that function within God's one unfolding plan of salvation for his elect? So that's what Republication is trying to answer. Yeah, what do you that's, think about that? that's super fair. And so, so it, it bears saying that when we're talking about Republication, um, you have to have a good understanding of the, the broad contours of specifically like Presbyterian Reformed Westminster Confession style covenant theology, because this is, it has, it has kind of um, tendrils or tentacles, tentacles. It has like arms that reach into other, other branches of covenant theology. Um, We will probably touch on a little bit, but uh, 1689 federalism is actually sort of a form of republicanism, like it's it's one outflow of the republicanist idea. Um, But so we did an episode on covenant theology. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, You can find that on the website. Just go back and listen to that if you're if you need a primer on um, kind of classic reformed covenant theology. And we're not going to spend a ton of time. But the the basic end of it is that. All parties involved agree that there was a covenant made with Adam in the garden that was a workspace covenant in which um, Adam would genuinely merit, in some sense, 
um, salvation or permanent eschatological life from God upon obedience of this covenant. So, right. so God, God made this covenant that he didn't have to make. So we can still consider it a gracious covenant in that God condescended and voluntarily entered into this covenant of life with Adam. And that in this covenant of life, he promised Adam uh, eternal life if Adam would obey, and he promised him eternal death if he would not obey. So that's the covenant of works. So where the, where the question comes in then is, how does the covenant of works made with Adam relate to the covenant made with, uh, with Israel through Moses as mediator at Sinai? And, and do they, how do they, what, what exactly is the relationship there? So we're talking that the, the term republication refers to the idea that the covenant of works made with Adam was or was not in some sense republished or like right. reaffirmed, restated, reincorporated at Sinai. So that's where the term comes from. Right. Actually, that's one of the few easy terms in theology where it actually makes sense in the, yeah. the sense that <laughs> <laughs> you can get something from the term itself and it's from its definition. So, right. That's what I'm thinking is republication is just describes how the Mosaic covenant is renewed, is a renewed proclamation or reenactment of the original covenant works in Israel's history. So for the maybe the person who's not familiar with this term, you very well may be thinking, why should we even care about this in terms of why even have a debate over whether it was republished or not? And I think for me, as I've been kind of meditating on the importance of this doctrine, it just comes down to this is another place where we want to be precise and meticulous because we know that the commandments that God gives us, that the covenant that he makes says something about his character. So it is important to sort through the details, primarily because there are different views on this, which I think we'll get to. And one of the best resources that you shared with me this week was there's a report of the Committee to the Study of Republication for the OPC. And that's available on their website. It's a, it's a tome, but it's yeah. really interesting reading. And I think it will give you a better perspective on the kind of the, the, the rich theological history, especially in the reform stream, about republication. But I think one of the best things in that document that we were kind of talking about, which gives this really broad brush and then very detailed view of this doctrine, is this taxonomy of the sus- substance of the Mosaic Covenant. And I, I think that's something that people don't often don't think about, that we can think about the Mosaic Covenant kind of four distinct ways or with four distinct views. So I thought we should kind of flesh some of that out and just kind of talk through that. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great idea. And and it also um, bears saying that even within these four broad buckets that we're going to talk about, there are kind of like various views underneath these that fit within these categories. So you may have a particular kind of subservient covenant, which we're, we're going to talk about what that is. And you may have, um, you know, Meredith Klein's version of a subs- sub, uh, subservient covenant. And then you may have Michael Horton's modification of Meredith Klein's version of a sub, you know, subservient covenant. Right. And those two things aren't the same. And then, you know, you've got all these different persnickety views. Um, and, and they're all built on, I mean, all of the people, who, well, I shouldn't say all, all the people that I've read who are building these views are doing so on exegetical grounds. So we're talking about disagreements among Christians, among Reformed Christians particularly, on how best to understand the biblical information regarding the covenant that God made with Moses um, at Sinai. And the reason that this is important for us, you may be thinking this seems like a really super technical, and it, it is a super technical topic. But where the rubber kind of meets the road on this is this helps us understand, in part, um, the the way that God has worked through redemptive history, right? And exactly. also the relationship between law and grace, and between Christ as the covenant mediator, the fulfillment of the covenant of works in the covenant of grace. If if depending on how we understand these views, 
um, is going to influence kind of how we see the covenant of grace itself unfold in redemptive history. So there are going to be lots of resources. We're going to try to keep the episode light, but I'm going to put as many kind of resources as I can think in the show notes. So if this is something that really piques your interest, then go take a look at the website, um, the show notes on the website, and um, you should be able to find kind of a, a wealth of information there. Especially, I like what you said there, as it relates to salvation, that this is giving us some kind of peek behind the curtain, so to speak, for what God has done in redemptive history. Yeah. So it's not just a throwaway topic. It's not just kind of like an armchair theological debate or discussion. And as well, to your point, this is kind of like an in-house, in-the-family discussion. Yeah, for the most part. This is not the kind of conversation you're probably going to have with with an unbeliever. Um, But it's I think it's worth having because, again, all this does is continue to grow and help us to work out our, our own salvation with fear and trembling. And, yeah. you know, I'm fearful about where this conversation is going to go. So <laughs> um, let me start by giving from from this particular report, I want to throw out two definitions, how they talk about republication two different ways, which will lead us into the taxonomy. So the first, and I'm just going to read real quickly from the two sentences. They differentiate between substantial and administrative republication. I think it's important to distinguish those. So substantial republication occurs when God is said to institute at Sinai a covenant that is essentially characterized as a covenant of works, as in the Garden of Eden, in terms of its principle or its constitutive nature. To compare that against the administrative republication, which occurs when the covenant works is declared, materially presented, or redemptively reenacted in the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. So again, like to your point, we're talking about two different things. Right. Uh, and so that that goes back, if you go back to our baptism episode, um, if you listen to the section where I was presenting kind of the, the Presbyterian view of baptism, I talked about the difference between the substance of a person who's in the substance of the covenant and a person who's in the administration of the covenant. So the administration has to do with kind of the outward, I don't want to say trappings, but the outward kind of accoutrements of the covenant, right? The the ceremonies involved in the covenant, um, the particular regulations, the positive laws that may be attached with the covenant, um, you know, who the covenant people are, those kinds of things are administrative realities. The substance is the actual essence of the covenant itself. So in the covenant of grace, for example, we talk about how the substance of the covenant of grace is Christ himself. Whereas the covenant of works, the substance of the covenant of works was a works-based merit principle. So Adam, Adam uh, received merit and that merit uh, maintained in part his union with, with God um, without, without really the necessity of a direct mediator to, to maintain that union. Um, there, there are some who would still hold to like a, some sort of union between the second person of the Trinity and Adam as a mediator. But most would say there's no, there's no mediator necessary for the covenant of works because it's a direct covenant made between God and Adam, where the substance of the covenant of grace is Christ himself. So right. that's what we're getting at when we talk about the substantial view or the substantive view is what is the actual core substance, the underlying structure of the covenant Versus getting caught up in kind of the administrative features of, well, circumcision versus baptism, you know, circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant different than circumcision in the Mosaic covenant. Those are valid questions. But for this, for this particular debate, what's really key is the difference between a substantial republication, meaning that the substance of the covenant of works, that works merit principle, was that republished or reasserted at Sinai? 
or was the gracious covenant which was made with Adam at um at you know Genesis 3:15 was that covenant that substance was that what was issued or was that what was maintained at at uh, Sinai and in many ways those are worlds apart and that word or the understanding of merit is going to come up a lot in this discussion because we're trying to understand how does one how does man achieve favor with God right and so a lot of that's trying to be answered in this you know, discussion about republication. So let's let's go into some of the fourfold taxonomy of the substance of the Mosaic Covenant. Sure. That was like a heck of a sentence right there. <laughs> the words <laughs> that you your never car over. Yeah, the words you never thought you would say on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon talking to your computer. This is fantastic. So yeah, we're gonna get a little technical here. So pull the car over so that you either don't pass out as we put you to sleep, or because you're just getting floored with all these amazing, wonderful details. Yeah. All right, so view number one is um, more or less, uh, and again, with the caveat that there are, there are multiple different kinds of views under this, but view number one, quoting from the report, is that the Mosaic Covenant is in substance a covenant of works, promising eternal life and or salvation upon condition of perfect, perpetual, and uh, personal obedience. So this, this view would say that the exact same principle or a, a matching principle that was issued to Adam at the at the beginning is reissued to those who are under the mosaic economy such that I don't actually see a strong difference between this view and classic dispensationalism. So classic dispensationalism um, argues more or less that there are different ways that God relates to people through time. And each one of those dispensations, you know, there's seven, there's nine different people have different numbers. Each one of those uh, uh, dispensations has a particular method of salvation within each dispensation. So I don't see necessarily how this view, if held strictly, is all that different apart from in the Abraham or the Adamic administration and the Mosaic administration, the method is the same. But then you have the Abrahamic administration in the middle there somewhere. So you have these discrete this discrete covenants or discrete dispensations where salvation is obtained in different ways. Does it make sense? I think it's essentially the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, the the main difference that I see is that in dispensationalism, you have, um, you know, kind of a succession of covenants. In this, rather than a succession of covenants, you actually have the covenant that was made with Adam being brought back around and kind of reinstituted with the people of Israel. Right. Deja vu all over again. Yeah. So I I think it bears saying, um, at least as far as the OPC is concerned, and I agree with them on their conclusion. And I don't actually know any reformed thinkers that would articulate this. Um, this view is is 100% out of bounds. Right. right. There's no room in the reformed tradition for arguing that the covenant, um, the the covenant of works, was in total substantively republished at Sinai. Meaning right. that a person who was able to, in any sense, obey the law of Moses was saved by that law. Was saved by obedience to that law. Um, because if we're talking about the republication, one of the side effects of a real full substantial republication is that that republication almost kind of wipes the slate clean, right? So there's the, there's the inheritance of Adam's guilt, which prevents us from fulfilling the covenant of works, even if we were somehow to live a perpetual, perfect personal obedience. But the problem with this form of republication, as I see it, is that when you, they get to Sinai, God reinstitutes this covenant. And so there's there's a reset. These people are now under a new a new iteration of the covenant, and thus could because Adam was not under that covenant. He's not the federal head of the Mosaic covenant. 
they could actually obey the covenant and gain life from it. So, so this view is out of bounds. There's not anybody that I've read that actually holds this, even sort of the staunchest um, people who want to have some sort of substance of the covenant of works in the, the Mosaic covenant don't hold this view. And that's a good lead into view too, because if we're saying basically this one is totally out of bounds, that most likely you're not going to run into this in any kind of conversation, then we're saying we're all agreed there's some level of grace involved in here, but how much? And right. that's where it gets tricky. So here's view two. The Mosaic covenant is in substance a mixed covenant containing elements of both a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah, and this view to me is actually a little bit confusing because I'm not exactly sure how you can have both, um, apart from some sort of idea that like the works that you're committing, they don't necessarily gain you salvation, um, right. but they, they gain you other sorts of eternal uh, eternal benefits. And And sometimes Reformed thinkers, if they're not careful, can slip into something like this where they start to talk about um, increasing rewards in heaven that are based on our merit according to obedience to the law. So I don't want to get into the debate about rewards in heaven. And, you know, sometimes that's more crowns or a bigger mansion or you're sitting closer to the throne. But if we're not careful in, in our articulation of that view, then we end up in this instance where like, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but all your rewards come by works. You, right. you you get justified. And, and in some parts, I think the people who are critical of John Piper, it always comes back to John Piper. Um, the people <laughs> who are, get away. The people who are critical of John Piper are saying more or less, this is something he's doing. Now, I don't, I don't know or think that he is, but their argument is that he's saying you're saved by grace, you're justified by grace through faith, but then there's some other works principle that um, kind of finds its way back in, in, the, in the background or through the back door that isn't in accord with, with Reformed theology. So th- we have to be really careful in our articulation of, of rewards and, and how sanctification works. If you go back and listen to our sanctification right. episode. I was just going to say that. All of this is circulating around this idea that the covenant that we're in with God is one part grace and one part our doing, one part our work. That God, God graciously grants us certain things, but then other things he grants us only if we earn it. And, and like I said, there are some people who would articulate a view where we, we, do, we do get you know, rewards in heaven or temporal rewards on earth in some way related to our own personal righteousness and holiness. But we, have to, we just have to be very careful when we articulate that not to slide into this kind of view. And that's why this is, though technical, a really great and timely conversation, because on the heels of us talking about sanctification and that being a work of God, this is one of those areas that until you really process it, either hear it in your own ears or see it on paper, you might start to think, well, that sounds reasonable. Until you trace it back and say, well, where do we find in the scriptures that there is some kind of confluence of both works and grace? And this kind of helps us to draw out whether or not we can actually prove it from the biblical text, whether that it comports, like you said, with God's plan of salvation and his work throughout the ages and bringing about the redemption of those whom he has elected. Yeah. So it's this, it, this to me is insanely helpful because it helps me to get a proper taxonomy for what we're talking about. When we look at the Mosaic Covenant and for that matter, for those that would, because I think you've had an exchange about some, with somebody on Twitter recently about this kind of thing, about understanding what the Old Testament law means to New Testament Christians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, this all circulates. Um, Jesse and I haven't actually been all that intentional about our, you know, our 2017, 2018 big six items, 
but we've managed to land on all of them. And this topic really does circulate around that law-gospel distinction, right? What's law? What's gospel? How do we understand in Scripture what is law? And how do we understand what's gospel? And what does that mean for us? Right. That's why this is a really great conversation. Yeah. So the third view, and this is where I think it starts to get interesting for the Reformed community, because view one, um, I haven't found anybody that articulates that. Um, None. The the report that we were reading uh, makes a pretty good point that Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and probably Arminians, if they really are are articulating this kind of stuff, they, they don't tend to think in these categories. But Lutherans and Roman Catholics, and I guess you could probably could put in Eastern Orthodox in there too, they think in that first category. The Mosaic Covenant was a law principle, a works principle. The New Testament is a is a grace principle. The Old Testament was all about how you earn salvation. The New Testament is all about how salvation is given to you by Christ. Even the Roman Catholics would say that, even though I don't think they say it consistently. The second view is a little weird, um, and there's not a large representative sample in the Reformed community. But this third view is where we start to see people like Michael Horton and people following after Meredith Klein, which is what sparked this conversation from Scott's question, is a podcast that is basically the Meredith Klein podcast. And Meredith Klein's view falls neatly in this position, although his is very uh, particular to him. This third view says that the substance of the covenant is a republication of the Adamic covenant of works, although adjusted to temporal blessings in Canaan. So what that means is that God republished the substance of the covenant of works to the people of Israel in Sinai. But rather than obtaining the um, eternal blessings that Adam would have, he adjusted the covenant, the terms of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant when it was issued to them to only include the temporal land blessings of Canaan. And this view, if I'm being honest, this view has a lot going for it. Because if you read read the text kind of on a flat surface level, this really appears to be what's going on, right? Right. For yeah. sure. I mean, there's, this is one of those things where there's, we're looking at uh, something that's about to happen and something that's far in the future, like telescopically. So it, it does go that way because it, it's clear in the text that God is establishing some kind of condition of obedience to some moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws so that the people, that God's people will be able to enter the promised land, the Canaan. Yeah. And so this view, um, the report talks about starts starts to get into what we see even among members of the Westminster Assembly. And we're not going to go into all of the specifics of the Westminster Assembly because I'm not qualified to do that. So go to the report and read it. It's very interesting. This report could have and probably should have been published as a book, to be honest. Um, but it's important for us to recognize that this also this view also is not necessarily mutually exclusive with the fourth view, which we're right, exactly. About. And I don't, I don't think that they, they brought that out in this report, but I actually think that this view can be sort of married to the classic view in a sort of typological sense. And that, that's where I yes. kind of find myself when I look at this is, is this understanding that the, the mosaic covenant did include a works principle and it did include real temporal blessings and real temporal curses. The people were given the land graciously by God, not as a reward for obedience, but they were threatened with being expelled from the land upon the condition of, um, of disobedience. And to me, that looks a lot like what happened in the garden, right? Right. Adam was given the land, not because of obedience. God created him in that state of righteousness because God condescended to do so. 
But then he was threatened with expulsion or death if he was to walk out. So so we'll talk about my view and how I, I understand this a little bit later. But this view has a lot going for it. And like I said, this is where it starts to get interesting because this is where we see people like Meredith Klein, like Michael Horton, like the people out of Westminster in Escondido who articulate a Republican view. And this view actually does have – I don't know all the details about what the, the committee was responding to and why they were uh, you know convened to do this. But I know a lot of OPC pastors and scholars who are studying this and are really intrigued with Klein's views. So this is a view that's I don't I don't know how prominent it is, but it's definitely out there. And it's it's not a view that people are gonna like get kicked out of their presbytery for. So keep that in mind as you're reading through this. This is another one of those um topics where there's a lot of times more heat than light. People get, you know, they throw out the heretic bomb when it's not merited. So just read through the report, read through patiently and be patient with your brothers and sisters that you may or may not disagree with. And you may find you don't actually even disagree with them if you listen carefully. I think you'll actually find that a lot once you go through this and have open conversation about it. Also, I'm stoked to hear you say that because I find myself wanting to merge view three and four as right. if like they are too mutually exclusive and they're, they've compartmentalized too much. And that's probably just in fairness, out of respect for trying to distill the core idea down. Yeah. So it could be that even, you know, Klein's view has some shading of a little bit of both, but I don't think anybody would disagree that obedience now is something that God calls us to in this current epoch and that there is some blessing for obedience. Right. So the plain kind of plenary reading of the text would lead us to believe that God is saying in a temporal way, if you obey me, then you will receive these blessings. But I think others would say, well, it's a little bit more than that. And so that leads into view four, which reads, the Mosaic Covenant is in substance a covenant of grace, although uniquely administered in a manner appropriate to the situation of God's people at that time. Right. So this view is what we articulated as classic Reformed covenant theology. So, so the, the historic classic view, the majority view at the Westminster Assembly, the majority view in the, the Dutch tradition, the majority view on the continent, all of these places, in one form or another, articulated this view that Adam was granted a covenant of life in the garden, and when he disobeyed and fell out of that covenant and faced the consequences of that, then God made a covenant of grace with him. That covenant of grace is the covenant that we are under, and each of the unfolding covenants throughout the historical the history of redemption is the, that one covenant of grace unfolding in proper ways according to the, the context of the time. So right. the, the covenant made with Noah, it gets a little weird because it was made with the whole earth and all the animals too, but the covenant made with Noah is the, co- the same covenant that was made with Adam. And that covenant, more or less, is simply, I will be your God, you will be my people. Those are the only conditions. We have to be God's people, he has to be our God, and all of the blessings flow from that. Um, and the, the beauty of the covenant of grace is that he fulfills the covenant by providing the condition for us. So, so it's not an unconditional covenant because there are conditions, but all of the necessary conditions are fulfilled by God that he grants to us. Right. So hopefully that makes more sense now about why we differentiated between substance and administration. Because right. when you say they're, they're substantially different, that we're like in a whole nother universe than when we're talking about these two things. Because we're, we're basically saying, while there is one overarching covenant of grace by which the elect are saved, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that covenant was administered differently under the law than it was under the gospel. So under the Mosaic economy, the moral law that was given to Adam as a covenant of works, which required perfect personal perpetual obedience 
threatening death, promising life, was republished and summarized in the Ten Commandments, but not to give life. It was basically to like shut up all men under sin, showing that they needed an obedience of Christ in order that they might seek grace to find him, to demonstrate the obedience that Christ would offer as a mediator, and then basically to show the regenerate who have been delivered from that moral law as a covenant of works, what the obedience of gratitude looks like. And that's why this is a beautiful, beautiful dialogue, because it's helping me to appreciate all of those little nuances and facets by getting into something that seeming on the surface is very technical. So it is really important to understand how we should live under this law. But also, doesn't this say something like just profound? When we say it's either substantively different or administratively different, doesn't that say something profound about how we understand who God is, not just how he works, but who he is? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And and I think, um, you know, obviously God issues these covenants in a non-reactive way. It's not as though God issues the covenant of works and then is surprised by the fact that Adam failed and had to sort right. of scramble and come up with plan B. So the the very fact that God issues the covenant of works and then issues the covenant of grace already is there to point us towards the reality of the fact that even in Adam's unfallen, uncorrupted state, he could not accomplish what was necessary to merit the salvation that God had promised him. And so even, even Adam's covenant is, in a sense, pedagogical, right? It's there to teach us something about God and about how God has to save us, given how he has chosen to create us. Right. And I, I think for me, that's where the, the covenant, that third view is so appealing to me. And, and maybe I just don't understand the nuances of the differences. But the way that I understand it, and it's funny because I, I used to hold Horton's view as far as I understood it, kind of lockstep. And this may be the only place that I actually have a real disagreement with him on at this point. And Horton is view three like we were talking about, right? Right. As far as I understand it, and that was what I what I got when I read Introducing Covenant Theology, which was kind of his entry level there. And the way that I the reason I understand him working this way is because this is what I believed before I had ever heard of this debate. Is I read Horton's book, and my understanding was there was the you know there was the covenant with Adam. He failed. He was given a new gracious covenant. That covenant carried through to Abraham or to Noah, and then to Abraham, and then somehow it's kind of skipped over well Moses and the Israelites, and kind of picked back up with David and you know following him. And that was what I kind of understood. And I understood the Mosaic covenant to have a unique role in that it was a way that God was teaching Israel something and then teaching us, but that those were real covenant blessings and covenant curses that were just, God was giving them the same thing he had always planned to give Adam in the land instead of in the whole land, the whole world. So that was my understanding reading Horton. And that, that is view three, as far as I understand it. But I think that you can take view three and understand that God is using this. And this is why I think most of the time people would say that my view is actually view four, is that he's graciously extending this covenant with its temporal curses and blessings, not as a a way for Israel to merit, you know, permanence in the land or anything like that, but as a way to continue to teach his people about their need for them. And so the the disobedience of the covenant of grace of works, the the disobedience of the Mosaic covenant, what that, and the, the curses that attend that, that is typological and pointing towards the disobedience of the reprobate as they, they earn and they merit their eternal punishment. 
as they refuse yeah. to make yeah, use of God's grace, as they refuse to attend to the means of grace, to acknowledge his lordship, as they refuse to conform themselves to his requirements, they are expelled out of the land of his blessing and they're, they're sent into eternal curses. And so that the Israelites being exiled in Babylon is typological of the reprobates eternal destiny in hell. And likewise, the blessings that the people of Israel do receive, even though they don't receive it permanently, the promised blessings of the Mosaic economy, they point to the, the eternal blessings that are ours in Christ Right on. Because of his obedience. So I, I don't know for sure whether that is, is view three kind of smuggled into view four. That's kind of how I look at it is that those blessings and curses were real. They really did get kicked yes. out of the land because they were right. disobedient. That sounds like view three to me, but the purpose for that is what is articulated in view four. So personally, I don't, yes. I don't really know where to go with that. I, I'm not sure where <laughs> I fit. Um, to be honest, I mean, maybe someday I'll stand in front of a ordaining board and they'll tell me where I fit, but right. it just seems like those two views are not mutually exclusive the way that this report sets them up to be. No, I agree. I think they're set up to be diametrically opposed when they don't need to be to express some kind of crystallized idea. But I think you and I are probably at like 3.8 or 3.9 yeah. in the sense that we're probably be more heavily weighted toward even the blessings that God gives to Israel are in fact acts of his grace. But it's that difference between the two kinds of covenants that's important to understand. It's the principle of inheritance, or right. what Voss called their intrinsic law of operation. So a covenant of works holds out a reward or inheritance upon the condition of obedience, which we've already spoken about at length. Under grace covenants, inheritance is going to be based upon the work of a mediator and is received by faith alone. But here's the part that I think we often missed. When we talk about a gracious or grace-filled covenant, Justice and works are not denied or marginalized. It's just that that justice has been satisfied and the necessary yeah. works are rendered by the mediator who acts in others' stead. So I'm with you. I don't understand why we can't have the appropriate acknowledgement that, of course, Israel received blessing for obedience in a temporal way without excluding the fact that it seems very clear from the scriptures that this was God's moment, another moment for him to teach them and us what it means to be close to him, what it means to rely on him in every single conceivable way. And so I think there's a lot of beauty in that, but it is a little bit uncomfortable for some. Yeah. And I think um, the, the way that the report at least kind of resolves this, and I think this is where my view and, and your view, it sounds like ultimately falls. I'm just going to read their conclusions. And, and you have to understand what this document is trying to do. It's, it's not trying to be a definitive um, authoritative stance saying what is or is not within the Westminster tradition. This is a report of a group that the, the General Assembly said, can you look into this and let us know what you think, what, what fits where? So it's not the case that it's impossible to get ordained in the OPC if you hold a view contrary to this. But I'm just going to read this. This is what they say. It says, we have identified two basic senses of republication, substantial and administrative. Administrative republication is consistent with our standards. They're referring to the Westminster standards, specifically the OPC ones, in that it coherently maintains that the covenant, the Mosaic covenant is in substance, a covenant of grace. And then it lists different examples. Examples of administrative republication include declarative material, misinterpretive republications, as well as indirect redemptive reenactments of Adam's sin and exile. So I think that's where your view and my view falls. Yes, is I that, think so. And, and, you know, maybe this is where Horton's view falls too. And 
the problem with any any contemporary figure, whether it's Horton or you know Lane Tipton or any, any other modern theologian who's still breathing, is their view is a moving target in some senses. Because as they read, as they write, as they study, as they learn, their views shift. And so if you listen to Mike Horton carefully, he constantly talks about the play within a play, that Israel is the play within a play. And what he's getting at is he's talking about the fact that Israel's entire story, bondage in Egypt, it, it maps up, it's a, it's a reenactment of Adam's exile into the east of Eden. And then right. the redemption of Israel out of Egypt is, is Adam's redemption in a sense that he is, he's given uh, clothing which covers him. His sin is covered at least temporarily until he looks to Messiah. All of this is a reenactment of Adam's sin. And then he, he points out that this reenactment follows actually the same conclusion that Adam's did. Adam failed. He was put in the garden. He had a probation period. He failed and he was expelled from the garden. Well, Israel is put into the garden in Canaan. Canaan is this, this temple garden. They're put into Canaan. They're given a law. They're given a task and they fail and they're exiled east to Babylon. So he's making this point, and I think that's probably where my view fits. So, like I said, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure that I see the difference between redemptive reenactment and the, the um, subservient view. I'm sure it's there. These guys who wrote this report are way better studied than I am. They, they They're know wicked the subject. smart. And it's the smartest of the smart that the OPC has to offer. I'm just not 100% sure exactly where those categories differ. I know it's going to seem like this was totally staged and contrived, but I honestly didn't know exactly where you're going to fall. And we incidentally have fallen basically in exactly the same place. Seems like that happens a lot. <sighs> I know people probably think it's all set up, but I would say the same thing. So to me, there's an overarching covenant of grace whereby God is calling his elect people out of sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ, the mediator, and he brings them into an estate of life and salvation. And as far as I see it, the scriptures teach that is the way to salvation from beginning right. to end. And it really right. makes no difference whether God's people are in the old or the New Testament errors. One Christ, one faith, one hope, one overarching covenant of grace in both Testaments. And that's how I see God's hand of salvation and his planning work out throughout the entire counsel of his word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much more we can say about it. This is um, such a huge topic and it's such a difficult subject to get your head around. Um, like I said, please, if you're if you're encountering this online and you're interacting with people, please have as much grace as you can for your brothers and sisters, because this is right. This is hard stuff. This is really, really tough stuff. And and like I said, a lot of times you may actually agree. Right. I might. I might go up to Mike Horton and say, I disagree with you on republication. And then we start talking about it. And actually we don't because right. whether he is affirming a direct non-redemptive reenactment of Adam or whether he's affirming an indirect redemptive reenactment of Adam, that's like a difference of two words. And, and so it's like, how do we parse that out without actually taking time to talk to our brothers and sisters and understand what they're saying and what the difference is where I think this is really interesting. And I would love to get the, the guys from uh, according to Christ to maybe speak on this a little bit is how does the 1689 fit into this? Because right. as I understand it, the, the covenant of works is one thing, the mosaic eco you know, economy, the Noahic economy, all of these other covenants are not, they're not in substance the covenant of grace, but there, it's also not the case that they're in substance the covenant of works. So it'd be interesting to see if we could figure out how to map up that view onto this spectrum, and may maybe we can't, but it'd be interesting to see kind of where it falls. 
And to follow that up with your point about use of words here, in terms of getting after substance, not the substance we've been talking about, rather than debating just over words, I was curious because I was looking up how others describe this. So let me read for you like some of the different terminology that's used just for this whole republication debate. So Owen, Voss, Pemble, they called this revival the covenant of works. I've heard Hodge call it reenactment of the covenant of works, repetition of the covenant of works, or re-exhibition of the covenant of works, that's Buchanan, or a covenant of grace legally administered, that would be a Calvin and Turretin, or sometimes just straight up covenant of works. So, yeah. A lot of the times, I think once you get into actual dialogue, you're going to find that you have a lot more in common, even like we were talking about in terms of these four different views, at least the last two. But I think at the end of the day, most of the reform are going to come to some sense that God introduced the works principle at Sinai to further the covenant of grace by foresignifying the obedience of Christ and to guide God's children into obedience of through that gratitude. Yeah. And so I think we most will agree with those kind of statements is where we dig into kind of the more nuanced details. And then 1689 is a good example of that, how that actually fits in, in within the other puzzle pieces, and then how we actually apply that in our lives. That could be pretty varied, and it likely is going to be very, very varied. Yeah. And the, the report also makes a really good point that, that I thought was interesting is that, and I ran into this when I was studying EFS views too is that there are lots of times in classic writers where they will use a phrase that um, is uncomfortable to us because of the implications that have resulted after it. So there are a number of places where various Westminster divines, other people associated with that era, learned scholars, people that the Reformed would trust as, you know, reputable and reliable expositors, will just say the Mosaic economy is a covenant of works. But then you read what they mean by that, or later on they clarify, or sometimes they say something that's just flatly contradictory if you hold them to too wooden of a standard. And it's always possible outside of the Bible that someone really is just contradicting themselves. But more often than not, what it is, is that we run into a situation where the terms didn't have the the connotations and the controversy surrounding them that they do now. And so we read that controversy back or our modern understanding back into these figures. So as strange as it sounds, it can actually be kind of dangerous to go wading around in these primary sources if you don't know what you're doing. It's kind of right. like going into the deep end of the pool if you don't quite know how to swim. You, you might drown. So you may end up walking out of that thinking, man, John Owen, was a, he affirmed the covenant of works, that he, he was a right. total substantive republicationist. And then when you actually start to dig in and understand what he's doing, he's not. He's not at exactly. all. Um, if anything, it's possible that John Owen articulated something more similar to the 1689 Federalist view. Yes. But either way, he's not articulating the, the pure and simple republication view that it may sound like if you just read him care, you know, carelessly or, or casually. In other words, he might not be saying what you think he's saying. Exactly. He's probably, well, with John Owen, he's probably not saying what he's you think he's saying. He's probably not saying what you think he's saying. So kind of to kind of wrap us up. And so I don't want to get us in a rabbit hole, Tony, but I, I might in a minute here. I want to at least speak like very briefly to like Scott's question about Meredith Klein, who is one who has articulated this. And my critique of Klein's perspective on this is not new. It's not nascent. It would be the same that others have had in the past, but this is something that others can kind of look up. But I would say that the question about, well, how does Meredith Klein present republication? What do we think about that? And what do I think about that? My main critique is just that the system, we've been talking a lot about merit. How does one achieve favor with God underneath these covenants? And I think the thing that's plain, at least, I think this is fair to say, is that the system of merit defined by Klein 
is novel and it does deviate substantially from classical Reformed orthodoxy because traditionally Reformed theology has held that there are two components that are essential to merit. One would be moral perfection. Second would be ontological equality. And so given that those are the two essential components in order for work or action to have merit before God, those two things need to be requisite. So of course, the work of the action must be morally perfect in its conception and its performance, so attitude and the outworking. But the second thing, that the work must be performed by one whose being is or nature is essentially equal to God. That's the ontological quality part. So like if the president asked me to get a cup of coffee, that's really not a merit-based activity on my part because I must submit to him. We're not, it's not a great example, but it, that's the ontological equality. So the thing is, what Meredith Klein puts forward is something a little bit different, and I don't want to get bogged down by that, but merely to say that he has this idea of simple justice. And so right. that's very different. So I think anybody that, I don't know if you want to speak to that, but if anybody wants to read more about that, that would, I would say would be one of the defining points that makes his view particularly different than the kind of traditional theological perspective. Yeah, and I didn't get a lot of time to study Meredith Klein's view. Um, we'll put a link to his book, Kingdom Prologue, which is not a full-orbed treatment of his um, his covenant views, but is a, a pretty good look and a good introduction. Um, but yeah, and, and it's important for us to remember that even in the original, the actual covenant of works with Adam, the merit was a covenant merit. It wasn't right. a strict merit. It wasn't anything that, that Adam was meriting um, in a pure and simple, strict sense. It was only meritorious because in the terms of the covenant that God had made with Adam, he had decreed that it would be meritorious. So that's important for us to remember because one of the primary critiques that that covenant theology gets from Roman Catholics is the idea that Adam could not merit supernatural grace on the basis of natural works, which is a valid principle, right? That's what we just said is the ontological difference between God and Adam makes it such that even, even... apart from covenant, perfect perpetual obedience to the natural law would not have merited eternal life. Eternal life only ever can be a gracious condescension on God's part because nothing Adam could do, even perfect obedience apart from a covenant, could have, could have brought about, could have obligated God to reward him. The other thing that I just wanted to, to kind of key in on is um, that idea that the covenant is gracious. The covenant is a condescension to Adam is something we have to remember is that the the natural law is not the same thing as the covenant of works and that's important because if the natural law and the covenant of works I'm going to read uh, part of chapter 19 in the Westminster Confession here in a second but if the natural law is one and the same exact thing as the covenant of works then we have to affirm a substantive republication at Sinai because what was republished at Sinai was the natural law. So, so let me read, um, I will, uh, just read the important parts. Not that any of them are unimportant, but the the main parts here of Westminster 19 says, God gave to Adam as a law, a covenant of works by which he bound him in all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. This law, Article 2, this law after his fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four of the commandments containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. Now, if you just read this quickly, you have to say, well, wait a minute, you just said that the moral law and the covenant 
of works are different. They're not the same thing, but it sounds like he's saying this law referencing the covenant of works. But you go to, you go to uh, Article 3 says, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several types of ordinance, so on and so forth. So what what I understand the the um, Westminster Confession to be saying, and and if I read the report right, what they also understood is that the natural law, the one the law that's written on the hearts of all creatures, not even just humans, all creatures have the natural law imprinted on us, right? Rocks have the natural law imprinted on us. They're not moral agents, so they it's it's sort of a non-starter for them. But the natural law is written into the very fabric of creation because of the one who created it. That was not the covenant of works. The, the covenant of works included obedience to the natural law, but it also included positive laws like don't eat from the tree, keep and guard the garden, be fruitful and multiply. These were all positive laws that were added to the natural law when the covenant of life was made or the covenant of works was made with Adam. But the natural law, this law commonly called moral, is what was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten right. Commandments, right? And then the, the confession goes on to add, besides this moral law, God also added to Israel ceremonial laws and civil laws, which were abolished for various reasons after, you know, when Christ came. Christ fulfilled the, the, the ceremonial law in that he was the priest and the sacrifice. He fulfilled the civil law in that he's our king. And so those things only apply to national Israel typologically. But if we don't get that straight, that the natural law and the covenant of works, although there's overlap in what was required by the covenant of works, they are not one and the same thing. If we don't get that right, we have to affirm. If the moral law is the substance of the covenant of works, then we have to affirm that the the substance of the covenant of works was republished at Sinai. So that's where you get this this um sometimes you see the language of formal versus material republication. Formal uh republication, form and substance are often used as synonyms. Material and administration are often used as synonyms. So the material of the covenant of works was in part the moral law, not the substance, not the form. So the material republication at Sinai is legit, but the formal republication at Sinai is not. So that's a slightly different take on the administrative substance distinction that we talked about earlier, but I think it's really important. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the outcome of that report was that basically the law was a schoolmaster leading Israel to faith. And the law did not do that by offering eternal life, but by basically being a ministry of death and condemnation. So basically to force them to flee from their own works to Christ's perfect righteousness and the promises that were made to Abraham, which were also reaffirmed through broader ministry of Moses. Yeah. So it's a really great, I would encourage anybody, we'll have put a link in the show notes so you can kind of peruse that. Even, it has great sections, actually. It's really well yeah. divided, really well written. So you can kind of, you can to some extent jump into a particular section and get something out of it. But if you'd like to get a lot more information on this from a lot smarter people, then I highly recommend that resource. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, one last thought, and then we can kind of wrap things up. The, the, one of the critiques that the 1689 Federalist position makes of the, the classic uh, Westminster position or the, the Heidelberg position or the, the Belgic position is that the covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant is not called a covenant of grace in scripture. It's called a ministry of death or a covenant of death or a covenant of promise. Now, I'm not sure how right. it can be a covenant of death and a covenant of promise in their view. But what you just said, resolves that conflict or that contradiction or that critique for me. 
is that at times in scripture, the warning of death is gracious to those who hear it. If they heed the warning, right? If I put a sign up on a cliff that says warning, if you walk past this sign, you will die. That sign is a ministry of death. It's a covenant of death. If you do not obey the sign, you're going to die. But for those who obey the warning, who heed the warning, that sign that was a ministry of death is actually a gracious promise and a protection for those who would heed the warning. So it's what you said is so spot on that it's important for us to remember that although the covenant with Moses was obviously law, it's called the law. There's, there's a clear law principle working in there. It still is a gracious promise and a gracious schoolmaster to those who are in the covenant of grace first to bring us into the covenant of grace, to show us our need for a mediator. And then after we have our mediator to serve as a rule of life, to show us how to live a life of gratitude as a result of that salvation. I've often thought of the Mosaic covenant as God's way of saying to me personally, don't hurt yourself. here, Here are the things that he's given me. And yes, like you said, they are hard and they are fast, but what he's really doing is to live the abundant life. You want to be within the scope of these bounds. And as you said, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we realize that we are actually able to come into that kind of obedience, but not before, of course, he's regenerated and saved us. And so what was the schoolmaster that only beat us on the hands with rulers now really becomes this pathway by which we can walk in the grace and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ by his redemptive power through the application of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to, to draw a, an analogy from um, our everyday life and, and then to, to wrap things up. Is, yeah, please give us an analogy from our everyday lives. You know, today, the, the day that we're recording is Father's Day. And, you know, the, the author of Hebrews makes the point that we all have experienced our earthly fathers disciplining us and we, we, we respected them for it. Right. And so parenting, I'm not a parent, Jesse's not a parent, but from what I understand and my own experience, parenting when done right is a slap on the wrist when you do something wrong. But the purpose of that slap on the wrist when you do something wrong is not punitive. It's so that later in life, when you don't have your parents to slap you on the wrist anymore, you no longer make those wrong decisions. Right. If I, when I, when I was young, um, I, I got hit by a car. It was a very minor thing. But I remember that I, my friends and I, you know, I'm laying in the grass. I wasn't injured, but my, my mom comes running out and I'm, I'm laughing because I thought it was funny. Well, what she did is she called the police and had them come and talk to me like I had broken the law. And why she did that is because she needed me to understand that although I wasn't injured in that incident, what happened was very serious. And now I know not to run out in the street anymore. Obviously, I'm an adult now. I don't struggle with running on the street. But for the rest of my life as a child, I knew better than to run out in the street. I thought the police were going to come arrest me if they did. I still feel a little bit weird jaywalking, if I'm being honest. But I think the you point, can get arrested for that. Yeah, especially in Hanover. The point of the punishment, the point of the rules, the point of the sometimes overbearing parents in our lives is so that later on when we are out from underneath their parentage or their tutelage, we no longer operate as children, but we now have been grown into mature adults who understand what it takes to live life as mature adults. Right. And that's exactly what the law does and did for Israel and does for God's people is we live, they lived under the law in order to reveal to us what good, holy, righteous living looks like, because that's the only way to live abundantly, to right live on. in the joy and blessing of the Lord 
is to follow his law, is to live according to his righteous standards. Right. So, so I think if you can kind of frame it in those, those understandings, right, we don't, we don't operate in a pedagogue system anymore. We don't have people who escort our children to school and make sure they're safe and then bring them home. But we all have had parents who set rules up for us and even bad parents set up rules with the hope that that will somehow form their, their children into the kind of adult that they hope them to be. Right on. I love that. I mean, there's a great amount of freedom in the Mosaic economy when we consider that. When God narrows down what is proper behavior, it saves us from trying to find what that proper behavior should be. So when he says, have no other gods before me or do not use the Lord's name in vain, we know that we are free to not worship other things, that we know that our devotion belongs to him. And he clarifies that for us. So in the same way, it discourages bad behavior, but at the same, like you were saying, but at the same time, what it does is it encourages what is proper living. So to kind of jump on your example, you know, when I was growing up, my mother always made us eat broccoli. Now, if I called her today, like after this podcast and said, mommy, be super proud. I ate a bunch of broccoli today. She'd be like, are you kidding me? Like you're an adult now. <laughs> you should know this. And that's the whole point of having the rule to begin with, to, to help mature us to a place right? where we say loving God and loving others is what's manifested in all of these commandments. And we've learned that and grown in maturity, but we need them at some point in our lives. And, and sometimes we cycle back to them because we've We've really fallen short of understanding what it means to be obedient. Yeah. And so that's why they're there. So it's a great way for us to be reminded that this is the scope of, like you said, abundant life. And I just want to get back into that. And I think this was a great conversation to kind of help propel me at least forward into looking at that all over again. Yeah. Well, if you feel like we've done a terrible job explaining republication <laughs> and want to make sure that we hear about it. We have uh, next next week, we'll be recording our uh, monthly question cast. So if you uh, have questions about this topic, uh, we probably won't get to them on the next uh, question cast, but send them in and we will try to get to them on the one following. Uh, we love listener questions. We have the best listeners who for sure. constantly supply us with questions. We are never short of questions for Uh, these shows. So give us a call. Jesse, what is that phone number? It is 607-444-2767. Awesome. So we privilege calls, uh, but if we get a really great email that needs addressing, we may address that on the air as well. And we do that every month. So if if your question isn't answered on this coming one, uh, please hang in there. We we have a lot of backlog, but we, we try to pick out the best questions and it seems like Jesse tries to build some sort of theme for the night. I Maybe I'm just reading into that, but it seems like I there's try. I try usually to some sort of curation that keeps stuff kind of on a single topic. So call in, leave a voicemail, um, and we love to hear other people's voices. All right. I think that does it, Tony. We basically got all kinds of technical and had a great time. There will be no more uh, controversy regarding republication from this day forward. <laughs> so it is written, be a so controversy cast. All yeah. we do is we just, we, all we want to do is just grab controversy and highlight it. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> well, on that note, until <laughs> next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-